Welcome everyone, my name is Peter Hackett. I am the Global Program Director for Cypher. In today's podcast, we are going to talk about how to get out in front of cybersecurity challenges, an inside look into strategies and tactics. And this episode is part of a series of podcasts which we publish and is intended to educate the public about various cybersecurity topics as well as highlight key capabilities of our company. And if you enjoyed today's podcast, I encourage you to subscribe so that you will be automatically notified when we publish future content. With me today is my colleague, Scott Krosky, the Global Chief Information Security Officer for Cypher. And for today's episode, we are pleased to have our featured guest, retired U.S. Air Force Lieutenant Colonel Vincent Sullivan. Vincent is currently a senior account consultant at Dell Technologies and the founder and CEO of the Cyber Strategy Institute. He comes to us today from the greater Washington, D.C. and Baltimore area. Vincent, how are you? I'm doing great. Great. Thanks, Vincent. Really appreciate your time today. Scott, I'm going to turn the introduction over to you. Yeah, thanks, Pete. And it's great to have now retired Lieutenant Colonel Sullivan on our show today. Uh, I first met him in 2014 when he arrived at U.S. Cyber Command and eventually was promoted to the director of the Joint Operations Center, which has global oversight of all Department of Defense cybersecurity operations. So uh, Lieutenant Colonel Sullivan had a distinguished career in the armed forces served in many roles. Some of the more noteworthy ones include the commander of the 333rd Training Squadron, uh, which directly trains 6,500 plus uh, Air Force cybersecurity professionals annually. Uh, Another assignment that's noteworthy was uh, his time as the Director of Operations for the 26th Network Operations Squadron. Uh, And for those of you that uh, don't know what they do, they uh, actually lead the 24-7 operations of the entire U.S. Air Force global network. Uh, and, and, and finally, I think one other really uh, interesting uh, job opportunity, you know, job positions that he had was he served as the chief information officer uh, for the Special Operations Command Central or SOCCENT, um, which is the task force assigned to providing special operations support to U.S. Central Command. Uh, so with that, uh, back over to you, Pete. Yeah, thank you, Scott. That was a great overview. So Vincent, as a leader in the cybersecurity career field for the U.S. Air Force, can you give us an overview of some of your job responsibilities? Yeah, absolutely. Um, <clears throat> so one of the biggest things, uh, you know, especially for officers is uh, you're looked at as a leader. First and foremost, uh, you have to look at your whatever position you're in or wherever you're at. I mean, your career, you're always looked at um, as as the leader um, leading the team, um, regardless of the level you're at. You know, one of the big things, we're, you know, we think of our, all ourselves in the Air Force as airmen. Um, that's our overarching perspective on, it, on things. And that's where our culture resides at. Um, for officers, it's uh, being a leader first. Um, sometimes uh, we forget about that a lot of times because we get wrapped up in the moment. Um, we get wrapped up in the position that we're in, um, whether it be, you know, an operator, a project manager, incident handler, you know, uh, you know even a developer or something like that. And we can get wrapped up in the actual um, job itself. And sometimes we lose focus on our, our broader role, which is to not just lead the people accomplishing those tasks or even doing it yourself sometimes, but then um, to lead others and other organizations and take on harder and bigger problems um, in your scope wise. And I know Scott mentioned some of the scopes that I had, um, especially the global one at the 26, which is, you know, running the wide area network for the entire Air Force. Um, so you have things globally. So not only am I working with my team there specifically in the op center um, and, and working and trying to manage tasks and doing my own tasks, um, but I'm also supposed to engage with the broader community as well at the same time. And now that you work as a senior account consultant at Dell Technologies, can you give our listeners a sense for what that job entails? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, really focused on trying to bring um, our uh, federal customer um, the end-to-end solutions that, that Dell uh, provides. 
not only you think of them as a traditional kind of a end component or server, um, but they also have partnerships um, and engagements with um, folks like VMware and then improving the cloud uh, ultimately. So really kind of from end to end from, you know, from the initial sales, working through the delivery and integration tasks, and then the implementation and maintenance of those servers. Um, really our customers look to Dell to help them optimize and streamline that environment as much as possible. Um, so they can focus on their core tasks, which is a mission. And I understand from my conversations with Scott that you started your own business focused on cybersecurity. Can you talk a little bit about more about that? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, <clears throat> my real, real passion and understanding of things, you know, as a, I talked a little bit about being a leader, one of those things is you have to figure out how to normalize things um, to make it simple so that everybody kind of understands um, where you're headed with that. Um, and the more that you get into this space, especially in cybersecurity, as you know, um, people think of this thing as truly complex mm -hmm. environment um, that's out there. And so when you think of like that, you know, you have to, as a leader, figure out how to normalize that. So one of the things I came up with was, you know, thinking about it from a strategic standpoint, I'm going to so look at it, you know, the, comp the cognitive complexity of the environment itself um, drives how we're going to execute in it. And so I wanted to come up with a framework, um, or a real way of designing my understanding of the space. Um, and I was successful at doing that in several of my uh, jobs of implementing that concept. And I want to take that further and then apply that out to the commercial world um, and help other people understand that this space is not as complex um, as some people will make you think it is. And as a leader of cybersecurity professionals, what were some of the challenges you had to face and how were you able to overcome them? Yeah, there's lots of uh, lots of challenges, you know, just being a leader, right? So a lot of them are kind of centered around those types of things. And I think one of the one of the big things in this space, um, you know, I, even even I feel today sometimes is I just don't have the skill set or the understanding to accomplish mm -hmm. some tasks um, because sometimes they can be overwhelming. Um, there's you know there's a simpler way to do it, but you don't know exactly the ins and outs of maybe Excel or uh, an a analytical program or something mm -hmm. like that but you always feel like you're, you're behind right. a little bit. Uh, there's a, a couple ways you can approach that um, as a leader. You can approach that by um, getting people additional training, uh, recommending um, people, you know, kind of the traditional approach, read books, um, you know, kind of absorb that way, um, go out and get additional certifications. Um, those are always uh, a great approaches. Um, but I found um, also, but in a leader, you can't always send your folks away to go do those things outside of the the office because you've got, you know, kind of your mission and your objectives and tasks you got to get done on a day in day out basis. Uh, so one of those things I try to do is wrap it all into kind of an OJT approach um, and, and looking at in terms of how are we going to accomplish the, the hard tasks in front of us by leveraging or looking at trying to onboard um, these new capabilities or the capabilities that we have in hand. How do we get better at them. How do we challenge ourselves. I mean I found, you know, through the OJT process you really begin to understand what you don't know and then what you do know. And if you challenge yourself, you'll, you'll get better at those tasks um, through time, just by the nature of the repetition and challenging yourself to try to look at them from new, new angles and new approaches. Um, so that's always to me been uh, one good way to get after um, this um, uneasy feeling that we all have in this space of not knowing, right? So a couple of key ways. Um, another one that I always uh, I found fascinating um, throughout my time is when people tell me it's not possible or this can't be done. Yeah. Um, so it's, yeah, you know, so to me, I always find that as, 
hey, well, this is a great opportunity to figure it out. Right. Hey, let's be the let's be the first people to figure this out, right? You know, let's ask the question this way. Let's look at it a different way, right? And look at it from different angles. And if you approach it from many different angles, you're more likely to figure out what's in the center of what the art of the possible is for you. You know, I could definitely relate to some of these things that you're talking about because I always feel like uh, there's things that I don't know, and this constantly, this constant education of, you know, trying to learn. Um, more to keep on top of the profession. And uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's very challenging. And, and I like your, I like your OJT um, approach to things. So what, what are your thoughts on, on, you know, taking that another step, what are your thoughts on how to best develop an effective cybersecurity workforce? And you know, in that regard, do you consider incorporating third-party security firms to help augment a cybersecurity pro- program? And, and if so, how do they play into the overall workforce of an organization? Yeah, that's always a, a challenging uh, piece. You know, how do you how do you drive improvement in your organization? Really, right? That's the core, I think, of what you're really yeah. asking. Um, and, and when you think about that, um, to me, the first thing you've got to figure out is, okay, where is the maturity of my organization? Um, because a lot of us sometimes, you know, you can have different types of organizations where, you know, the, you've had folks together for multiple years. Right. Me and Scott working together, you know, after several years, you know, we're humming. We know each other. Right. We know what we can do, what we can't. We bounce. We, we know how to balance each other out. Right. Um, so it's about determining your maturity level. So I look at that in several ways. You know how you know what you got to look at all your people. You know, what can and can't they do? What are their understandings? What don't they understand yet? Um, you know, uh, what are the processes you have in front of your, from in front of yourself? You know, what skills do people have, right? Because you know, they may be in a position, but they also may have additional skills that that position may not be leveraging. So you can go back to them and say, hey, can you leverage? I know you have this skill set. Can you help me mm-hmm. with this problem, right? Mm-hmm. You know, where are you at with your tool implementation? You know, do you have all of the, you know, configurations enabled or are you just getting it out of the box and you, you're just going with the bare basic until you start to understand it, right? Um, and your overall experiences with things, you know, so you know, go back and reach back in in my head a little bit. And, you know, when I was at the 26, uh, for me is a good example because I had varying levels of experience. I had contractors that had been doing that, that job and that mission for, you know, six, eight years. And then I had brand new um, military members because my organization was growing at the time. I went from 14 up to, I think, 86 people in the military side by the time I left in under two years. Um, But getting those folks in and getting them trained and a lot of those military people were straight out of technical training. Um, so they didn't have a lot of on the job experience. They had some book smarts that, you know, some intuitive stuff or whatever, but they needed a lot of the OJT stuff I just talked about yeah. earlier. Right. So powering that maturity level. Um, so one of the key things I had to do was we had to document. You have to, you have to, you know, do the dreaded thing and actually put things down on paper, which people don't like to do because you know, it's, it could be out of date within six months. You know, if you're lucky, it lasts six months. If not, it doesn't last as long and you got to update it as soon as you uh, make the change. Yeah, documentation uh, yeah, is, is only as good as, um, is only as good as uh, today, right? So it's a, it's, a, it's a living, breathing document or it has to be in, in order for it to be, um, you know, to be effective. Uh, yeah, and it, you know, and to, to get to your point, right? You know, so does this segment warrant, you know, third parties and, and taking advantage of others. I mean, absolutely it does. Um, Cause we can't take advantage of the state of the art in this environment. If we're not leveraging people that that's all they focus on. 
Um, you know, so you have to figure out how to incorporate other aspects so we can take advantage of their maturity right. levels in certain roles and responsibilities, right? Mm -hmm. So, you know, because you can't always find the, the talent to execute those things. I mean, if we were to take the, the norm of the, the perfect position, right. right? It's a 10 year plus person, right. you know, they've, they've got a yeah. master's or a PhD yeah, at this exactly. point, you know, they, they've been rocking it on this, on this capability forever. Right. Um, but th this, this community doesn't produce people like that very often. I mean, we're not producing hundreds of thousands of yeah, people. Yeah, exactly. Producing 100%. Hundreds. So true. And Vincent, can you go into some details as, as to how you challenge the status quo when it comes to cybersecurity for organization? You know, how do you, um, how do you look to go above and beyond just meeting the standard security approaches? Yeah, so you know, one, of the, one of the things I looked at is, um, you know, we say challenge um, and look to the future a little bit. Um, so, so part of that to me is, you, under, you know, we talked about your maturity level, so understanding where you're at there. So once you've understood where your maturity level is at, then you can figure out, okay, where do I want to go? And in the military, we call that the end state. So once I figure out what I think that end state is, then it's about mapping everything in between those two things, right? So you know how mature you are, you know where you want to get at, then it's trying to figure all that stuff out. Um, some people think that's project management or whatever, uh, you know, in the military, we, we look at it a little bit differently and we apply, um, you know, the, I, I call it JP50 or joint operational planning um, concepts, which, which kind of walks me through a mission analysis understanding, right? So as I'm doing my mission analysis, I'm understanding how, how I'm aligned, right? What capabilities do I have? You know, how mature I am? How, what do my partners look like? What are they bringing to the table that can help me? You know, what systems do I have? You know, what logs are they producing? You know, what tactics, procedures do I have in place? You know, how am I doing analysis? What are my configurations actually doing for me? And verifying and understanding and normalizing all of that, right? You know, at the same time, then you, you look at, you know, you can call the threats that are out there on the space. Usually in the military, that's your enemy. Right. So what are the indications and warnings of them, of the enemy doing stuff? What vectors can they come in on? Right. What are the most likely, most dangerous aspects of those things? And then really understanding your environment so that you can frame it to allow yourself to project towards towards the future. Um, and that's how you kind of break the status quo. But you got to challenge and not just look at the evolution piece of like that next step. Right. You want to look at that harder problem, the thing you don't think is possible. Um, because if you, you know, you don't want to make it too hard, but you want to make it, you know, hard enough that it's not something you can do in a couple of months. It's something you're constantly progressing towards. Um, and that's kind of where your vision and mission statements come into play and helping you kind of, kind of drive that um, towards execution. But once you get, understand your environment, then you can frame out what you need to execute. And then you go after and you ruthlessly ex execute all those things. So it's linking your strategy to execution the people that do that the best can change the status quo very, very quickly. Vincent, we've seen a vast migration of businesses migrating their traditional IT applications to cloud service providers. So in your experience and from a security perspective, what are some of the benefits of migrating to a cloud service provider and what may be some of the pitfalls? Yeah, I mean, uh, as a security guy, you know, I think we always see a little bit more pitfalls than we see the, see the advantages. Um, but the big advantages really are, it's, it's about the flexibility side of things. It does give you a little bit more flexibility um, in terms of stuff. And if you were already running stuff in-house, um, you also get to maybe save some, save some energy 
um, from your internal team and you can realign them against tasks that you really need to get done that you can't outsource at that particular point in time, right? It does also give you uh, the ability to scale. Um, so some organizations, you know, ebb and flow over time in terms of users utilization of their platforms, depending on the season even, right? If you're a seasonal customer and most of your shopping gets done between October and, <clears throat> you know, the end of December, right? You Maybe you need to beef up your, your environment during that window, but then the rest of the year, you know that your sales aren't as much. So you can scale back um, that environment and save some money during those off months, those non-peak times, right? Um, kind of a good example, you know, and that also gives you the agility to take advantage of some of the latest tech, right? Um, so you can, you can integrate those technologies at a much faster rate than you could in your own environments, usually. Um, you know, you can, then on the, the flip side of that, really, then you're, you're also looking at the complexity of the environment itself, right? Um, you know, and you can think of it in terms of <clears throat> who controls what, um, from where, do you have all, you understand all the fine prints, um, if you ask for things, um, you know, I always look at it, you have to be a little bit more diplomatic, <laughs> you know, in terms of stuff and your engagements um, when you're working with your providers to get capability in and out. Um, so those are, those are some of the things that, you know, really pop into my mind as I, as I think through that. Yeah, that makes sense. And, and actually this, this, um, my next question actually kind of dovetails after that there. So we, we chatted about, okay, you know, cloud migration and, and some of the benefits and, and, you know, we also hit on a little bit, some of the pitfalls, but I think one of the biggest pitfalls is the, um, improper application of identity and access management or IAM controls. Um, this actually was the, the leading cause, uh, for security incidents in the cloud for the last several years. So what are your thoughts on this topic and how can it be best addressed by an organization? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, linking those to it's, you know, you kind of hinted at it, but it's about your ability to configure your environment, right? You know, I know IBM hits that as one of the top things that can cause you to have more pain if anything was to happen to your environment and cost you more money. Um, the last thing you want to do is have an unconfigured environment. Um, and identity management is the core of that. Um, and the challenge with that, you know, on the downside, when you look at um, some of the studies, right, the mega breaches and stuff like that, well, it's all about identity, right? The, the more identity information you have in your environment, the greater at risk you are. Um, and the greater, the bigger the target you are as well. Um, so maybe it could be looking at, you know, how do you implement how users connect to you? Um, could be a way to reduce that risk in terms of those things. Um, you know, uh, internally, you know, companies use like RSA token type, type solutions I know there's a company out there recently that I, I've learned about called Ubica that Im implements the, the FIDO2 protocol, um, which really helps reduce the threats of users being phished um, and their passwords, you know, you know, if their passwords were taken, you know, re reduces the attacker's ability to do that replay um, perspective on that because each site has a unique um, password and ID with that. Um, so it also reduces the, the likelihood of users reusing passwords or reusing very similar passwords between sites. So if your, um, you could say, um, identity um, management of users using your environment was to be breached, um, that data would be relatively um, useless to attackers other than on your site, right? Which you, mm -hmm. you obviously have to take care of, but um, the, the second and third order ramifications of that um, drastically get reduced, which I think is a, a great thing. Um, you know, if you look towards the future a little bit too, with folks talking about blockchain, um, really it's about the implementation of a, 
you know, kind of a public and a private key address. And so as those companies get better at implementing that technology, making it more user friendly um, and the adoption goes up, then it's, you know, what you share and what you own determines who you are. And then if you're a company and if you need minimal information in that environment, um, then your risks go down. Um, and then also the likelihood of you being targeting go targeted goes down as well. So you want to reduce those likelihoods, I think. Yeah, those are really good examples. And I know, you know, you, you touched on it there about uh, the fact that there's so many people out there that reuse passwords across multiple web applications and, and you know, some of the emerging technologies out there to really prevent that. You know, we uh, just got off a call with a custom, a, 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 a potential customer um, that fell victim to a password spraying attack, right? And and, and credential stuffing is another one that, uh, you know, is heavily used out there. And, and um, you know, you, you touched on how to mitigate some of those uh, um, you know, some of those breaches in the past and being preventing an adversary from using that to access other, other, you know, desperate web applications. Uh, so switching gears a bit to attack techniques, uh, let's talk about the MITRE attack framework. So as you know, it's been out for a few years, but is rapidly becoming adopted by security professionals. However, when you take a look at the actual attack matrix, you'll quickly find that there's over 180 attack techniques that require technical mitigations to be put in place. So obviously it can take months and even years for large organizations to properly adopt mitigation techniques to counter each TTP uh, or tactic technique procedure. So can you provide your thoughts on how an organization should best approach adopting the MITRE attack framework? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I always you know, kind of start from that strategic standpoint of you know, identifying where you want to get to, um, you know, and, and the MITRE attack framework is, you know, one of many frameworks that people try to implement, um, you know, and there's, I think I, I counted, there's like 23 other frameworks out there that people um, utilize, the NIST, the GDPR, FISMA, um, SOC 2, ISO, to name, to name some, right? Um, those kind of look at your traditional approaches, some of them from the security standpoint of just, going in and uh, clicking all the buttons and the configurations in there um, and going at that from that approach from a system standpoint or maybe from a functional standpoint. Um, the unique aspect of, of the MITRE piece is um, this helps you when I was talking about, you know, doing the mission analysis from the enemy perspective, this helps you put yourself in the, the mindset of the enemy and how they're going to look at your space. How are they going to, you know, get in? What are the most likely ways that that's going to happen? Um, and then from there, try to figure out how you're going to go implement all those things. Um, you know, and you're talking about it's going to take a lot of time. I think, you know, a lot of that time, as you know, is because you, you could potentially go in and, and possibly even just break your entire environment. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and that's the last thing you want to do is to slow your own <laughs> company down. Right. You want, you want to protect yourself, but you need to methodically go through that. The only way to I think the best way to approach that is to understand everything in your, your environment. So if yeah. you understand your friendly side and you understand what the enemy might be doing, then you can prioritize those areas that you think are the most likely to be at risk. And then you can spend your energy in those areas and methodically go through that, you know, so you know what's going to happen inside that, that space, right? So you can look at your architecture. You can look at what you own, what you might be leasing, what, who you're partnered with, what capabilities you might be sharing with others, you know, your third party folks, or if you're, you're in the cloud completely. What are they going to be doing for you? What do you have to do, right? Because that cloud provider is not going to do everything for you. 
Um, sometimes the illusion is they're going to take care of everything, right? We talked about there might be savings with certain stuff, but then there are other aspects, right? When we talked about misconfigurations, well, they also push back and make you say, well, here's a container. You've got to do everything inside of that container yourself, which is basically just, you know, standing up servers and configuring them, getting all the applications to work. So you still got a lot of things you've got to think about in terms of your own environment, but the attack framework really focuses you on that um, so that you understand what you need to get after. Um, and one of those things is under, to, to do that, you have to collect the data off of your systems. And so a lot of us struggle sometimes with making sure that we're collecting the data so that we can then go back and analyze it. So this forces you to actually then start analyzing your data and you'll be surprised at, at how much you can learn um, with what you thought you were logging versus what you actually are logging. Um, and as soon as you start diving into that, I, I know for myself and many times I realized I thought I was logging a lot more than what I really wasn't. You know, so I had to start getting in there and saying, oh no, we gotta turn that on, turn that on. And I said, well, let's just capture everything and then we'll figure out what we don't need. Um, and several <laughs> times, you know, six months later, I realized I needed those fields, um, but I didn't have them. Right. And then I was like, why did, why wasn't I collecting that? And they're like, well, we were worried about space. And I'm like, oh, you know, I hear, <laughs> yeah, I hear hard drive I hear space that all the time. Cheap. Yeah. You hear that all the time. Oh, we want to conserve space. Well, what do you know? You know, you have to collect the information to analyze it. Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, that, and that same information is what you're going to use to measure how, how effective you are at implementing those countermeasures um, that the MITRE attack framework highlights. Um, so you can't, can't really go back and say, you know, hey, we did it successfully. Okay, prove it to me. And right, go, right. Um, uh, I need the logs. I'm like, yeah, I think we talked about that a few months ago, right? Did you turn it on? No. Hmm. Okay, <laughs> well, maybe we should now. Yeah, yeah, maybe we should. Okay, yeah, let's do that. Right. And, and I think one of the things, and, and, and thank you for your, your thoughts on that. And one, one of the reasons why I, I like the MITRE ATT&CK framework is, um, you know, in, in order to be an effective uh, defender of a network, you have to also kind of look through the eyes of the adversary. You know, like you, you, you at, the, at the beginning, you, you, you mentioned, you know, the, the NIST, um, in, in this framework, you know, I think uh, the CIS top 20, you know, these are all very good ways of hardening a network and, and applying the appropriate security policies. But unless you actually look through the eyes of an adversary, you, you don't necessarily always get the full picture. So um, that's why I'm, I'm, I'm a big fan of that one when it comes to MITRE ATT&CK. So yeah, I'm, I'm right there with you. Cool. Yeah. And let's look a little bit more about um, uh, IoT devices. So with the migration and, and uh, deployment of 5G um, across the world, uh, you know, we're seeing a major expansion of IoT devices that are being adopted by the market and being used by businesses um, to, you know, be part of an integral portion of their, of their organization. So, you know, what are your thoughts around IoT device security and how should organizations approach the security of these devices? Yeah, I think the approach is, in my mind, pretty simple, right? Um, you know, I, I've, uh, you know, a few, I think uh, last fall I was uh, visiting, uh, you know, some colleagues down at, down at Georgia Tech, uh, you know, and they were doing some experiments on uh, Internet of Things devices and getting lots of good results and publishing that and highlighting um, the fact that they are insecure. Um, so, you know, in just learning about that and, and seeing it out there, right, you have to go in with the assumption, you know, and I think, think we can quickly turn that assumption into facts is most of these are insecure. Um, so when you look at employing these capabilities, I think the first thing you have to think of is um, 
segmentation of your environment and isolating these things from the core of the rest of your business um, and putting in place uh, key key points upon which, you know, if you do need to connect them, it's not throughout your environment, it's through key choke points or, you know, positional points where you can establish monitoring and logging. So you can track and understand what's really happening with those systems, what are they doing for you, um, and, and identify anomalies that may or may not happen um, through those systems because they might be extremely vulnerable um, and an adversary could use them to pivot into your environment. Um, so I think segmentation is key, right? So using VLANs, community of interests um, are absolutely critical if you're, it's in, inside of your environment. Um, and then you can use uh, other uh, control mechanisms to also um, reduce and segment them you know, from a permissions standpoint to even further granularly uh, define what they can and can't see in your environment. No, that makes sense. And yes, down to the basic fundamentals. I mean, you know, segmentation is one of the most uh, basic security practices that are out there today. Yeah, I remember a a story of one of my friends who's going through the PhD program in the Air Force, and he he mentioned that there was a competition um, and one of the teams that uh, segmented their entire environment um, while somebody could get into portions of that, they could never pivot in, in between um, at the bottom of the network to get across. So they had to start all over again, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, and so what you're doing is you're forcing the adversary to incur costs and time and effort. Um, and the more that happens, the more frustrated they'll get and the more likelihood that they're just going to move on or stop. And I, that, yeah, and I think that's why the zero trust um, you know, networking uh, principle is really, uh, really, really important uh, for for you know companies to to be able to adopt yeah absolutely okay uh so yeah pete um over to you thanks scott so vincent as you know many organizations are still in a work from home model right now so how should organizations posture themselves to continually support remote devices that are used for work purposes and uh, also how should security be incorporated in order to be protected to protect these devices from threat actors in the world yeah, I think uh, the big challenge there is if you're in an environment where you were bring your own device, right, and you relied on your employees to have their own devices, um, you may have to step up and, and look at uh, how they're connecting to your environment um, and, you know, possibly, uh, in, you know, get them the endpoint security stuff and, and other things you could possibly deploy to make sure that you uh, protect their end device as much as possible. In terms of that, right, the other pieces, and um, we talked a little bit about the identity, identity management aspect of things. How are they connecting to your environment? Um, and double checking and putting those, those areas under constant surveillance for um, deviations. I think I saw somebody suggest the other day also is, um, you know, possibly implementing, you know, uh, work times for your employees, right? So if you're a regional or local area, or even if you're a global area is, um, defining the, the work time zones that your, your folks are going to be working in um, and only allow remote connections or those users to be able to work during the certain work hours. And then after those work hours, um, not allow them to be logged in <clears throat> um, and just work through it that way. That can help reduce your tax, attack space as well. Um, I think your biggest challenge overall here is um, really it's your um, company's knowledge that you, you're really trying to protect because um, now it's being distributed out uh, and you want to protect that. 
um, as much as possible in your intellectual property. And I think, but I think your knowledge is going to be the hardest one to, to segment out your biggest challenge, I think really. Vincent, any final thoughts as we wrap up this podcast? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, for me, the, the biggest thing is, um, you know, how do we, how do we determine our outcomes? Um, how do we, how do we look at that? And that's really at the root of everything. That's, that's at the heart of how we make decisions, right? Our decision-making processes um, when you look at everything. Uh, so when you're, you're trying to get after stuff, um, for me, it's understanding your environment. Um, and I ruthlessly go out and try to understand my friendly side of the house as much as I possibly can. Dive into that, get those details, um, set up metrics, and I guarantee you your metrics are going to change throughout time. You know, when I first first started at several organizations, I'd start off with some metrics as I started to learn, even sometimes daily or even weekly, monthly. Um, those numbers and the things that I was looking at needed to change. Um, as I understood things and I made quick decisions on certain aspects to lock down your environment or change configurations, then your metrics need to change. And what you're looking for is going to change as well. Um, and that all drives how you make decisions. Um, and I always look at decisions, sometimes people try to label them as, you know, that was a good one or a bad one, or that was wrong, or this one should have been right. Um, but throughout this entire process, those labels can absolutely be changed um, throughout. Um, so you can go from, you know, hey, this was a good decision to, whoa, that wasn't very good at all. But you can quickly recover because you're measuring your environment, you're watching it, you understand that, and then you as soon as you understood that was a bad decision, you now have the ability to make the decision to change that. Same thing with a wrong decision. You initially thought that was going to be a wrong one. That could be the best decision you ever made. And you look back, you pat yourself on the back. You're like, oh, that was incredible. Can't believe I made that one. Right? So those things are, are labels and they can change over time. You know, so it's just like any story, right? The rags from riches or riches to rags. You know, you can change that story's outcome. Um, throughout. So don't ever, don't ever uh, lose sight of that from a decision-making standpoint. Um, but, you know, when we look at the cyber domain, right, so people say that that sounds easy, um, but it's hard to implement. And I, I would somewhat concur, right, because we we're talking about getting data and trying to analyze it. Well, you have to collect all the data first. That's one of our biggest challenges when you're trying to climb the, the pyramid to wisdom, right? You start off at the base. That base is completely about data. It's all the logs, all the, everything coming out of your systems is just lots and lots of data. Some of it then gets turned into knowledge. That's, you know, the sensors, the, the alerting information, some stuff gets turned into things that we can think is useful, right? You start getting knowledge by comparing different systems information to each other. And you start coming up with questions and you start answering questions. And you're like, oh, I, now I am starting to have a feel for what this environment kind of really looks like. Um, then your next challenge is then, now, how do I take, go from just knowledge and create wisdom enough so that I can make a decision? Um, so I kind of look at it in off of kind of two pivot points from there, right? It's, you know, now that I have some of that knowledge, what are my risks and opportunities with that knowledge, right? What, what can that knowledge help me take advantage of things? And what do I have to counter what, you know, get after my risks? So now I can really apply what I'm going to make make my uh, decisions out of that, or AKA that wisdom, right? The other aspect is how successful am I at accomplishing these things? That determines if I need to apply more resources, more time and energy to get after those risks or leverage it against that opportunity. 
right? I'm measuring how well my people are doing those things. And the better I get at those two kind of pivot points at the top of my pyramid, you know, those are, I can really get after the decision-making process. Um, so that's kind of how I, how I look at the entire space per se and getting after making decisions, right? Because to me, it's totally about our mindset that determines our ability to get to our outcome. Vincent, thank you. Thank you for that. It was a really, uh, that was a really good answer. Good uh, comments there. And uh, Scott and Vincent, thank you so much for your time. This has been really informative and I look forward to our next podcast. And we hope our listeners walked away today with some valuable information. So please remember to subscribe to our podcast and you will be automatically notified when we publish future episodes.